studying the Gospel of John, I invite you to turn to John chapter 8. I'd like to reread the first 11 verses that we read last time and then to look at our text, verses 12 through 29 of John chapter 8. John 8, verse 1. God's holy word. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst, when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And here's our focus tonight. Verse 12 through 29, Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. The Pharisees therefore said to him, You bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from. And where I am going, you judge according to the flesh. I judge no one, and yet if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. Then they said to him, Where is your Father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my Father. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. These words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come. Then Jesus said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. So the Jews said, Will he kill himself because he says, Where I go, you cannot come? And he said to them, You are from beneath, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Then they said to him, Who are you? And Jesus said to them, Just what I have been saying to you from the beginning. I have many things to say and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true. I speak to the world those things which I have heard from him. 
They did not understand that he spoke to them of the Father. Then Jesus said to them, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things. And he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. God's holy word. We bow before him and ask for his help. O oh Lord, our God, what a great revelation you've given to us. We pray for your Holy Spirit to illuminate your word and to brighten our hearts that we might see and believe and give you glory. Grant us faith in this Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, last time, congregation, it was a very dark situation. As we reread that in the opening verses, there's a woman caught in adultery, and so she had entered a dark place of breaking her marriage vows or intruding upon someone else's. But even darker than that was the, the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes who have dragged this woman before Jesus, utterly insensitive to her need for grace and mercy. They are using her just to try to trap Jesus. They are hypocrites, legalists, and these are the leaders of the church. But, but in that darkness, the brilliance of Christ shines because he drives away the hypocrites and he extends grace to this woman, invites her to follow him. It's upon the heels of this story in verses 1 through 11 that Jesus speaks and says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. This is actually the second I am statement in John's gospel. You recall John's gospel has seven of them. We saw the one in John 6, I am the bread of life. Now we have I am the light of the world. And then in John 10, we have two of them. I'm the gate and I'm the good shepherd. John 11, I'm the resurrection, the life. John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And John 15, I am the true vine. And and these are glorious statements, are they, of our Lord Jesus, who is who's revealing himself and proclaiming himself in glorious terms. He is a Christ who is for us, a Christ who's given to us, a Christ who comes for sinners. For the hungry, the spiritual hungry, he's the bread of life. For the, those walking in darkness, he is light. For, for sheep who are defenseless, he is the shepherd. For the dead, he is the resurrection, the life. For those who can't find a way back to the Father, he is the way. And for those who are spiritually withered, he is the true vine. These are, these are glorious statements in which Christ is making clear that he is for sinners, right? We often want to think of Jesus. Satan wants us to think of Jesus as a, as a Savior who's far off, who's not really interested in our needs. And yet, all of these statements he makes are statements that reveal he's a Christ for sinners. He's a Christ to rescue and to save and to deliver. Glorious statements. And so Christ isn't playing games. He's proclaiming in clear terms who he is that we might believe and in believing on him have everything we need in him. And so tonight this glorious statement, I am the light of the world. Let's look first at the wonder of this claim and then at the truth of this claim and then the consequence of this claim. Well, first of all, it's an astounding claim. I mean, we're used to it as Christians, but it's an astounding claim. I am the light of the world. People used to worship the sun, right? Imagine some man walking on earth and saying, I am the sun. No, you're not. The sun is radiant. The sun is expansive. The sun has the power to illuminate the earth and, 
and by its light and warmth to cause food to grow. You're not the sun. But Christ isn't claiming just to be a part of creation, the great ball of fire. He's claiming to be the very light of the world in the sense of answering to something far more than than daylight or or the warmth we need. He's, He's proclaiming that he is God and that he is salvation for sinners who have no way back to God. I'm the light of the world. The background here is John chapter 7 as well. We earlier looked at John chapter 7, that it was the, the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booze. It was a, boys and girls, it was a fun time for boys and girls because they would put little tents or shelters up on their rooftops. Or they would set up camps outside of Jerusalem because people would come from all over to Jerusalem to live in booze or tabernacles and to remember their days in the wilderness. And we noted when we were looking at John 7 that there's this, this festival of the water. They would draw water from the well and carry it up and pour it out before the Lord, remembering how the Lord provided water in the wilderness. And, and as they look forward to the water of life, God would give them the fullness of salvation. But there's another Another kind of symbolic festivity that took place at this Feast of Tabernacles as this Jewish feast grew, and it was a kind of festival of illumination, that in the temple, it said that they had some four huge lampstands. Some say they were higher than the walls, or as high as the walls in this open area of the temple, the court of the women, and that they would, on these nights of the festival, they would light these lamps after pouring huge quantities of oil into the bowls at the bottom. And these things would light up with such an expanse that, that they say the whole city would be in some way lit up. One of the Jewish writings says there, there was not a courtyard in Jerusalem that was not illumined by the light of the place of the water drawing. Now whether Christ's statement here in John 8 is actually why he's at the festival or after the festival, that stands in the background there, that, that Israel has remembered the light of the Lord from their wilderness days when that fiery pillar had led them through the wilderness. God was with his people. Remember that, that fiery pillar stood between them and the Egyptians when they came. God protected them by that light. God guided them by that light. God was with them by that light. And now Christ is saying, I am that light. I am God with you. I'm the light of the world. God's people need light. Need light. In the Bible, there's so many wonderful things about light, right? We think of the dark creation, which God spoke and called forth light. And we need light to live, don't we? So we don't stumble over things, but we need light. If there's not light, there wouldn't be food on this planet. But God's people need light because their history is one in which they have returned to darkness. They've snuffed out the light of the prophets. They're, they're now learning that many of their spiritual leaders are, are, are filled with spiritual darkness. They've seen what they did to this woman. They're a, a diseased and a sick people. As Jesus walks through Jerusalem, there's people that are that are maimed. There's, there's people who are possessed by demons. This is a dark place. And it still is tonight, isn't it, in our world? We live in darkness, a dark world of ignorance and confusion. We grieve over the foolishness that we see around us. And it's not just out there somewhere, but our own hearts by nature are dark. 
stubborn darkness, insists on going its own way, finding pleasure in everything except God, delighting in the things that delight Satan. But Christ comes as light. The light of the world. To show us the way to bring us back to God. But even more than that, light is life. Light is life itself. Remember the Gospel of John actually opened up with uh, those wonderful words that we know. In the beginning was the word and so forth. And it says, all things were made through him and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life and that life And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness does not overcome it. And then it talks about John who came as a witness to that light. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. Jesus Christ is light. He is the light of life. In Psalm 89 verse 15 we read, Blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. They walk in the light of your countenance. In the light of your face, your countenance upon us. Darkness is death. To live outside of the brightness of God's face, that's death, right? I mean, that's actually what hell is, isn't it? Hell is when God's face is turned away and you're cast into outer darkness. But to live before the the radiant face of God smiling upon you, that is life. It's to have fellowship with him. Christ has come not only to be the light upon our path, but he's come to bring us into the brilliance of God's smile. I am the light of the world. It's an extraordinary claim. Who could bring us back to God? Who could put us back in the light of God's countenance to walk in joy before the living God? but Christ. So he makes here an astounding claim, and it's an exclusive claim, right? I am the light of the world. He doesn't share the score with any other. He doesn't say that there's any, any partners in this cause. He alone is the light of life. The Pharisees will get angry at him as we read on in our text here and upset with him, not because he says he has some light as a rabbi to shed. They're not upset because he says he can tell people the way to happiness. They're upset with him because he's claiming that he himself is that light, that favor of God come to sinners. I am the light of the world. Not just a light for Israel, but for the world, even Gentiles. What a beautiful claim. He's light for young and old, male and female, rich and poor, educated, uneducated, for those living in Lands of democracy and for those living in lands of communism, Christ is the light of the world. God has sent his son into the world for this very purpose, to come to a dark people in a dark land under the oppression of Satan and to restore them to the brightness of his face. And yet who knows this light? Only those who follow. I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but but have the light of life. What does it mean to follow Jesus? It means to believe on him. It means to come to him confessing that I of myself am all darkness and I need you. It means, it means taking him at his word, trusting in him. It means looking to Christ on the cross, who in order to be for us the light of the world had to suffer the deepest, deepest darkness. 
was three hours of darkness on the cross at noon to 3 p.m. were symbolic, weren't they? That, that the place that we deserve to be cast out of God's presence was the place that Christ had been put. God's favor turned away. And we await in Christ the day when darkness will be no more. The new Jerusalem, we're told, in the book of Revelation, which will be filled with the illuminating glory of God, we're told that in that new Jerusalem, there will, the gates will never be shut because it will never be nighttime. It will be all light. That's our destiny. The place where it is all light all the time. It is 100%, 24-7, perfect fellowship with the radiant living God. I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. To be united to Jesus Christ by faith means we're not, we're not bound any longer in that dark dungeon of Satan's kingdom. Just read this morning with the girls in the catechism class about the, the author of the Belgian Confession, Guido de Bray, who, well, he wrote the Belgian Confession, and when it was discovered he had written this thing, then they... They hounded him for five years, and he went around preaching and wore disguises and different stuff. And, but they caught him, and they put him in prison. And he was down in the dungeon, the place where all the sewer of the place ended up. And yet amazingly, when he got the word that in a few hours he was going to be executed, hanged, he told everyone what a joy and delight that he should have the honor to die for the Son of God. In a dark place, but the brilliance of Christ's light in his life and heart. We don't walk in darkness anymore. We have seen the light of life belong to the kingdom of the Son of God. And in this kingdom, it is always light. We know every day that God is for us and not against us, that the Spirit has been set upon us as the seal of our inheritance, that we're never on our own, that God will never leave us and never forsake us. It said that at that Jewish festival of illumination during the Feast of Tabernacles, they would light those lamps and, and they would dance around all night. It was, it was jubilant and celebration. But how much more now that Christ has come? Blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. They walk in the light of your countenance. To live under the smile of God. To bask in that love. And to know we have a message now for the world. We know he who is the light of the world. Ours is not a savior simply for this congregation or this denomination or these kinds of people. I'm the light of the world. We think a lot of thoughts maybe about our neighbors in Salem. But we should recognize that so many are living in darkness. And it is an ugly, deep, awful darkness. It's the dominion of Satan. Where death rules hearts. The reign of Satan. It's a life of being excluded from the favor of God. We may, we must pray for the world and pray for our neighbors and let our light shine before men. Being eager to tell them a reason for our gladness.
that we know he who is the light of life. So it's a wonderful claim Christ makes. But then secondly, notice the truthfulness, the truthfulness of this claim. This claim is met by the Pharisees who say, you bear witness of yourself, your witness is not true. Seems that, again, the Pharisees here are concerned about technicality. God's law spoke about having two witnesses. Somebody's charged, for instance, with with a capital crime. You have to have two agreeing witnesses in order for it to be valid, for them to be condemned. They say to Jesus, it's just you talking. It doesn't have any validity. Interestingly, back in John 5, verse 31, Jesus himself said, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. But Christ is making a different point here. Christ is now saying, if I bear witness of myself, verse 14, even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. That's something they don't comprehend. They are flesh. They judge by appearance. They don't know where he's from or where he's going. But they have no ability to judge that anyway. He, he is divine. He has come from heaven. He's on a mission from the Father. He's returning in glory to, to be exalted. These are things that, that they cannot see or comprehend. He is the one who knows these things, who's come from the Father's side. Who is more qualified to bear witness? Who's, whose witness is more reliable than the Son of God? The reason God required in the Old Testament that you had to have two witnesses was because all men are liars of themselves. But this is the Son of God. What a horrible thing, horrible thing to reject his testimony. He knows where he came from. He knows where he goes. As an aside, Matthew Henry, the Puritan commentator, says there's something that's true in this for us also. He writes, this is the satisfaction of all good Christians, that although the world knows them not as it knew him not, yet they know where their spiritual life comes from and where it tends and go upon sure ground. But that's interesting, isn't it? We, as the people of the Lord Jesus now, we are not the Son of God, the Christ of the world, but we knowing Christ and being united to Christ, we we know with a certainty where our life comes from in Christ and where our destiny is to be with him. So the world can accuse and shake their heads and say we're foolish and you can't prove that. We have no shadow of a doubt. We know it. It's true. But Christ goes on here to say he also has a witness in the Father. The Father bears witness of him. But, of course, their witness is one because he is in the Father and with the Father. So you have this twofold witness of Jesus Christ the Son and the Father in heaven. And yet the response here of these hardened Jews in verse 19 is remarkable. They said, well, then where is your Father? If you've got a witness, call him to the witness stand. Bring him forward. Let's see him. And what does Jesus do? Does he say, I'm sorry, you're misunderstanding me. I'm talking about my father who's in heaven and he's invisible. It's not what he does. He says in verse 19, you know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. 
That's a devastating indictment. Saying, you don't know my witness, you don't accept my testimony because you don't know God. You're strangers to God. You stand outside of his fellowship. And so two things are made clear. Number one, no one knows God who doesn't know Jesus Christ. There's all kinds of people in this world who claim that they know God, and yet they reject Jesus. And sometimes people use this kind of an idea that we're all, we're all climbing a mountain to God at the top of the mountains. We're all just on different sides of the mountain. We're taking different trails up the mountain. But, you know, it doesn't matter, they say, whether you believe in, in Islam or Judaism or Christianity or Buddhism. We're all just taking so many different trails to the top of the mountain to God. But that's clearly not the case. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. You don't know me. You can't know my father. But secondly, Jesus makes clear here that the issue in accepting the testimony of Jesus has nothing to do with a lack of evidence, but only a lack of life in the heart. We often feel, don't we, brothers and sisters, that if we had more evidence, we could convince the unbeliever. We need more proof. So we have to remind ourselves often of what Romans chapter 1 says, that it's never a lack of evidence, but it is rebellion of the heart. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. What a critique of, of sinful man. It's not about evidence. It's everyone's without excuse. God's revelation. The whole creation cries out. People hide it. The same thing in Luke 16 with the parable Jesus tells of the rich man of Lazarus after they've died and gone to two different destinations and the the rich man is pleading that Lazarus would go back and tell his brothers so they don't end up in hell like him and What does Abraham say? Now they have Moses and the prophets. They have the scriptures. Your brothers have the scriptures. If they won't believe for the sake of the scriptures, they won't believe if I send Lazarus back from the dead to them. It's never about a lack of evidence. It's about the state of the heart. Jesus says, you know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. Only the Holy Spirit can open eyes to see and give ears to hear. So, in missions and evangelism, we're utterly dependent upon the Holy Spirit, and therefore we're dependent upon prayer, to call upon him, to open hearts. But here's the other side. Because the testimony of Christ is true, the problem is not a lack of proof, we can believe the word and preach it without shame, trusting that the word is sufficient. This is the proof. It's the word of Jesus. It's the testimony of the Son of God. So we ought never to be ashamed of this book. It doesn't matter if 10 million people can't see it. It is the word of Christ. And it is true.
But that also means, then, brothers and sisters, that we have to learn to trust in our lives. It's not just something you believe one day and you are saved and then you go on to live your life differently. It's, it's a book that we must look to always for our life. We face a daily struggle to live by the word rather than our inner feelings and experiences. It's pretty practical, isn't it? If it's the testimony of Christ we hold in our hands, then, then this is to be the light for us day in and day out. When it comes to marriage, when it comes to parenting, when it comes to finances, when it comes to how to deal with a trial, when it comes to everything in our lives, Trust the testimony of Jesus. It's popular today to speak about authenticity. Saw the billboard on I-5, you be you. You be you. That's, That's the great virtue of our culture. Be authentic. Be true to yourself. Well, why is that a virtue? I'm angry at the guy on the freeway and mad that he's going slow and I want to kill him. And I kill him? Am I being me? Am I being true to myself? You be you. If a murderer and a rapist tells everyone he was just being true to himself, is that a great virtue we lift up? Why is being true to our dark minds a good thing? Jesus is the light of the world. We aren't. We are darkness. We're not called to be true to our wicked selves. We're called to repent, to grieve it, to sorrow over it, to turn from it, to look to Christ who is our light. And so when it comes to all the things in life, our calling is not to do whatever our experience and emotions say. Our calling is to come into the light of Christ's word and to trust this testimony. It's true. It's true. We're to trust it not because we, first of all, experienced it and found it to be true. We're to trust it because it is true. It is the word of Jesus. And therefore, even though I don't feel it, it doesn't feel like something I want to do, and it looks to me wiser to go this way, I'm to believe the word. Not just on the day I get saved, but every day of my life. He is the light of the world. We are not. And he is God of God, light of light, very God of very God, as we confess in the Nicene Creed. And for him... Being true to himself is noble and right. He is God. But then thirdly tonight, there's a consequence to this claim Jesus makes. A consequence to this claim Christ makes. Two times he speaks a a devastating word. The second time in verse 24, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will Die in your sins. It's going to be one of the most terrifying statements in the Bible, doesn't it? To die in your sins. 
Not to die as one who's forgiven. Not to die as one who knows he's pardoned. Not to die as one who has entrance into the, the brilliant face of God. But to die in your sin speaks of a, of a devastating permanence that it's all over. And now for eternity I stand before God in my sin. What an awful thing. The adulterous woman didn't have to die in her sin. The light of the world stood before her, spoke words of pardon and peace and a calling upon her life. None of us have to die in our sin. For the people who die in faith in Jesus, our sins are pardoned. The gates of heaven are wide open to us. But if you reject the testimony of Christ, the the inevitable alternative is to die in your sin. See, there's only two ways to die. Lots and lots and lots of people want to believe there's a third way. You can die in faith, you can die disbelieving Jesus, or you can just die in the middle. I'm not for him or against him. I don't have my mind made up. I don't really think about spiritual and religious things. I just die in the the middle way. Well, the middle way doesn't exist. You die in faith or you die in your sins. That's all there is. Isn't it strange that the very Jesus who's ignored every night on the news is himself the very center and the meaning of history? And that every single life that has ever lived on this planet will be judged in relationship to Christ who is the light of the world. All kinds of people think they don't have to think about Jesus. I don't think about spiritual things. But every human will be judged in terms of the response to Christ. It reminds us that what we're doing tonight here is eternally meaningful. We're worshiping at the feet of the Lord Jesus. We're we're seeking life and he who is the light. We're, we're, We're reaching for that great goal of salvation. We're yielding our hearts to him. They asked Jesus, well, who are you? Verse 25. And then Christ says, verse 28, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing of myself, but as as my Father taught me, I speak these things. Back in John 3, Jesus speaking to Nicodemus said the Son of Man must be lifted up, right? People could believe and not perish. And, And now we read about a lifting up. In John chapter 12, we have these verses in uh, verses 31 through 32. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. So lifting up of Jesus is a lifting up on the cross. Lifting up of Jesus is him being crucified. And Jesus tells them, you want to know who I am? Well, when you lift me up on the cross, when you kill me, then you will know who I am. It's quite a statement, too. Should that be read positively? I mean, how, how, when they lift up Christ on the cross, will they know who he is? We could think of all the signs that will accompany the crucifixion of Jesus. There's darkness in the middle of the day. There's earthquakes. There's the centurion, Roman soldier, who cries out, truly this 
Is this the Son of God? Or we could think of the resurrection is going to be raised from the dead. We can think of Pentecost, the Spirit will be poured out. We could think of hearts that are broken on Pentecost when Peter says, You've crucified the Lord, and they're cut to the heart. And yet, in John 8 here, Christ's words don't seem to be hopeful about conversion, but he seems to be giving a devastating warning here that when they try to destroy him, they will discover. That he is indestructible. When they think they have triumphed over him, they will discover that he is the Lord. One writer says their intention was to plunge Christ to the lowest hell. He tells them they'll be completely disappointed and that it will be altogether contrary to what they expect. In the cross itself, he gained a splendid triumph over Satan before God and the angels by blotting out the handwriting of sin and canceling the condemnation of death. There's going to be a terrible realization for some when they discover the Christ they hated and thought they had gotten rid of is in fact truly the Son of God. What a horrible thing to wake up to that reality. Whether it's on the day they crucify him or later in their life or at the moment they die, what a terrible thing that Christ's return for so many who've ignored Jesus will suddenly discover. He's exactly who he said he was. He is the Son of God and the only Savior of the world and the judge appointed by God. Jesus Christ will not be overcome by men. He does the things the Father sent him to do. He speaks as the Father sent him to speak. Verse 29, and he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. They will not triumph over Satan. And the world in all of its darkness will not triumph over the church. John Calvin makes this interesting comment, speaking about the preaching of the word. He says, all faithful teachers ought to be endued with the same confidence as Jesus has here, so as to entertain no doubt that the hand of God will be near them when with a pure conscience they discharge such a ministry as he demands, for God does not furnish them with his word in order that they may strike the air with an idle and useless sound, but makes his word successful by the secret efficacy of his spirit you see that's true if christ is still busy today upon the earth through the preaching of his word then men may deny christ they may reject christ they may be belittle christ but christ will triumph even today through his word on our last day all people will have to confess that the word of jesus christ that was preached was true this is who he is It's a terrible warning for all those who refuse to turn, but it's the great comfort and the hope of all who will come to the light, the Lord Jesus. He's not going to be overcome. Some people wonder and worry that the sun is going to burn out someday. All of its energy, right, will dissipate. Christ is the light of the world. His glory will never diminish. His light, which is your life, will never fade. He has come to do what the Father sent him to do. He speaks the words of the Father. And he invites us to follow him and to know the life 
that's found in his light. Is this your Lord Jesus? Don't you love him? What a savior he is. Speaks in clear and wonderful terms for us sinners that we don't have to live in darkness. We don't have to die in our sin. I am the light of the world. Amen. Let's pray. Well, glorious Lord Jesus, we thank you that you speak clearly and you speak graciously. And you come to darkened hearts and you enlighten them. We pray that your light would be shed abroad in our hearts tonight. We would be lifted heavenward, finding in you our forgiveness, our joy, our peace with God, the hope of eternal life. Lord Jesus, we pray for this world to which you've come. We pray that you would call sinners to yourself. We pray for loved ones. We pray for friends. We pray for our neighbors. We pray for so many who are still in bondage. We pray that you would save them, that they would not die in their sins. That you would rescue them by your great power and for your eternal glory. Help us to live in such a way as to provoke the questions about our hope. Help us not to diminish your glory, but to exalt it. And help us know how to speak and when to speak and what to say. And bless, Lord, the preaching of your word to the ends of the earth in every place and in this city too. We pray that the testimony of our Lord Jesus Christ would be faithfully declared that many might hear and believe. In Jesus' name, amen.